I'm your host, Satya Mishra, and today my guest is Dr. Albert Tewison. Dr. Tewison is well known in image sensing circles for his many papers, patents, and textbooks. He's a professor at TU Delft and also consults and coaches in solid-state imaging at his company, Harvest Imaging. He sat down with us at ISSCC 2018 to share his insights into what makes a successful student and a successful researcher. Also, there's a mystery to solve at the end of this episode. Dr. Tewison, welcome to SSCS Chip Chat. Thank you. So I understand uh, you grew up in Masik and you uh, developed an interest in technology early in your life. Tell us about that story. Yeah, well, actually, I did not grow up in uh, Masik. I was born in Masik in the hospital over there. And I think I stayed in Masek for five, six, seven days. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember, of course. And then I went back uh, to the place where I uh, grew up, which is very close to Masek, and where we lived with, uh, with our family. So my father was a uh, carpenter and my mother was housewife. So basically, I do not have the electronics uh, background or the interest in electronics from, from my father or from my parents, but I was always interested in technology. Um, what I remember is that when I was, was still a boy, I think, that I was interested in uh, biking, especially in uh, the competition in, in biking. Uh, so in summer times, then I was always listening to the radio uh, as much as possible. Uh, my mother said from the morning till the evening, was always listening to the radio to hear uh, the interviews with the cyclists. And then I remember that I made a kind of a wooden mechanical thing a kind of remote control uh, to increase the volume. So when the, the cyclists were there, that I could in increase the volume of the radio just by putting a kind of a pedal. So i am always been interested in technology. So the story is maybe be, uh, becoming even more complicated. Uh, so I, I made these mechanical constructions, so to say. But when I was 18 and I went to the university, then actually I had in mind to start my study as a, a chemical engineer. But the situation in, in Leuven at that time, I do not know how it is these days. You start engineering in general, uh, and the study is, is about two years, and then you have to make a kind of a decision in which direction that you go, in, in, in chemical engineering, um, electronic engineering, mechanical, and so on and so forth. So I started with uh, chemical engineering in mind, but then actually I chose for electronics. Don't ask me why, because I cannot recall, I, I cannot remember. But I was pretty lucky that I could stay at the university on a PhD program. And during that PhD program, actually, I was working on technology and on how to fabricate, at that time already, image sensors, how to fabricate integrated circuits. And uh, actually, that's a beautiful and a great combination of electronics, device physics, as well as chemistry. Um, and I've always loved uh, that, that part of, of my life, let's say, the PhD work, where these three disciplines come together. That was really, really a lot, a lot of fun, yeah. So as I understand, um, image sensors were first invented in 79? So you were pretty early in there. Well, I think you're not 100% correct. It's actually very difficult to, to tell when an image sensor was being invented. Already in the 60s, there were quite some attempts to come up with a solid-state image sensor. But actually, none of these uh, ideas made it, except maybe one where Peter Noble, an English guy, uh, he did an invention of what is being known later on as the active pixel sensor. And that was already done, I, if I recall, out of my head in 68 already. In 69, there was a what we call a BBD, a Bucket Brigade device, published by two guys from Philips. 
1970, there was the CCD published by Boyle and Smith. So it's, it's, I would say it's in the late 60s already that people start working on, on solid-state image sensors. But at that time, it was just a, a, an array of 50 by 50 photodiodes, or in the early days of a CCD, it was just 64 or 128 pixels. Now we talk about 120 millions of pixels, so to say. Yeah. OK, my history was wrong. You did uh, talk a little bit about your PhD at uh, KU Leuven. Yeah. What was the experience there? Were you in a large group? Who was your advisor? How did you work with the university? Yeah, uh, it goes a little bit together with your remark that you just made that I was uh, with, with imaging already from, from the early days. I uh, did my uh, master thesis actually in the group of uh, Professor Dick Lurk, Gilbert Dick Lurk, who became later the CEO of IMAC. Young professor, the whole group actually was, was composed out of young people. Uh, young people motivated in a new field that was called solid-state imaging, charge-coupled devices for solid-state imaging. And it was a great, great period to work, uh, to work with. It was more, yeah, that, and many things still had to be developed. Um, many things could, have, uh, uh, could be developed by young engineers as well. These days, that's much, much more difficult because these days we have chips with billions of transistors. So you need an incredible infrastructure to do any development, further development in that field. But at that time, everything, almost everything, still had to be invented. And you could do an awful lot of things yourself. And that's also what is happening. I still remember that in the clean room, we were standing just next to each other without these special suits that are people wearing today. I mean, what we called at that time a clean room is probably called this, these days a very, very, very dirty room. <laughs> at the regular times, the secretary came just in the clean room, just without wearing any special clothes. Just she, she came in to tell there's a phone call for you or there's a message for you or this or that. I mean, that was the way how we worked at that time. But as I mentioned, we, we did inventions, so to say, and, and, and discoveries and developments almost on a daily basis, yeah. It was a great, great atmosphere, and, and maybe this is maybe one of the, the, the most beautiful times in, in, my, in my career, so to say, yeah, yeah PhD. Yeah. So how did you make sure that the devices actually worked if there was no control over what was going on in the environment? Well, be careful. Yeah, yeah, that's correct what you say, but at that time, we thought that we had control over the environment. At that time, we called it a clean room because, yeah, I think there was some ventilation and that's it. Um, these days, we are talking about completely, well, we are talking and living and working in a complete, complete different world. At, I don't remember exactly, but at that time, I think minimum dimensions were something like two and a half micrometer. These days, we talk three orders of magnitude uh, better or finer, let's say. We talk in the nanometer range. At that time, we were still talking in, in the micrometer. So it's, it's a complete different world. If you try to make your devices of today in, in that environment that we had, I'm talking about 40 years ago. If you try to make these devices that we have today in the environment that we had 40 years ago, well, that, that's absolutely not possible. That's impossible, absolutely, yeah. But at that time, you should, ev you should see everything in its own time frame, so to say, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So after your PhD, you um, went to work for Philips Research Lab. That's correct, yeah, yeah. So how, how did you get into Philips Research Lab? And Ah, that's a very interesting story. Uh, how do I how do I got there? That's a very interesting story. There were very um, good contacts between the the CCD group, solid state image sensor group of uh, Gilbert Gilbert Clerk at the KU Leuven, and the group who did CCD work at Philips Research. 
Uh, basically, they were not competitors. They were two research entities, so they were not really competitors. And um, on a very regular basis, um, the groups met each other, maybe once in a year or once every two years. And I remember that in, I think it was 1982 or maybe 1981, I do not know exactly, remember exactly. But in, in the very early 80s, then a group of uh, um, young PhD guys from uh, KU Leuven, including myself, we went to visit to the research labs uh, of Philips in Eindhoven. And I still remember that that night when I came home, I said to my wife, I was married already at that time, I said to my wife, that's the place where I would like to work further. Um, that environment was so research friendly and so, yeah, how to say, so inviting to, to do research. Um, I loved that right. I, immediately I said, that's the place where I would like to work. And I was very lucky, so uh, at the end of my PhD period in Leuven, then I applied for a job at the Philips Research Labs. I was invited for an interview, and at that time I still remember that um, the guy who did the interview, uh, actually I asked the question at a particular moment, do you have a vacancy for a CCD engineer? And the guy said, uh, actually no, we do not have a vacancy for a, a CCD engineer, but I recommend that you step out of solid state imaging and that you do something else to, to broaden your scope and to broaden your vision and your knowledge. I was there again for the second round of interviews, uh, three or four months later, and I met the same guy. And the same guy offered me a job in the CCD world. I said, hey, wait a minute, uh, a couple of months ago you said uh, you, better for you that you do something else, and now you offer me a, a job in the CCD activities. And he said, yeah, but I need somebody with some experience uh, urgently because one of my key engineers left. So I was very, very lucky that in the same world of solid-state imaging, I could continue also at Philips Research, and that's how I started over there, yeah. Interesting. So how was the environment in Philips? Is it different to what one would experience today uh, in a research lab? That's a very simple answer, very simple question, and uh, the answer to that is one word, absolutely. Absolutely. I still remember that the same gentleman that I was just talking about who was uh, uh, suggesting uh, the the... the to fill up the vacancy in his group was Mr. Colette, Max Colette, he, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. And I remember that on the first day that I entered Philips Research Labs, he came to pick me up at the reception. And uh, so he brought me to, to my place, to my um, office, and I asked him, I said, and what shall I do? And the guy answered, you do whatever you want to do, as long as it is good for the company, and then he left. So that's the attitude that we had, in, I started in 1983 at Philips Research. That's the attitude we had in 1983 at, at Philips Research. These days that's no longer possible, absolutely not. But, but just to tell you what the atmosphere was. So you could choose basically whatever you want to do as long as it was good for the company. And, and yeah, that basically we did research in the CCD field, but if somebody was interested to do more hardware side or to more technology side or to more this or to more that, you had the freedom to do so. Basically, the sky was the limit, yeah. yeah. Budget, budgets did not exist. Um, deadlines did not exist. All that kind of stuff came later, about 10 years later, yeah. So you had all the freedom to do whatever you wanted. Yeah, I call that the biggest playground, the largest industrial playground in Western Europe, and that's where we were working, yeah. So, so that was gorgeous, yeah. It was a beautiful extension, let's say, of my PhD period, but yeah. Yeah, an average person will probably get bewildered with so much freedom. That's correct. That's correct. You sh that, that's a very good remark. You, could, you should also be able to handle that freedom. 
and to actually, uh, and if you were able to, that you could benefit from it and you could build up your own career and, 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 and so on and so forth. People, there are a lot of people who cannot handle that freedom. There are a lot of people that need to be told, today you have to do this and, and tomorrow you have to do that. Exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, I was in the lucky situation that I belonged to that first group, yeah. yeah. So after uh, Philips, you went to work for Delta Corp? Yeah, yeah, I just uh, was telling that beautiful story about Philips Research, but that changed, uh, that, that changed rapidly in the early 90s. Because in the early 90s, uh, Philips became uh, under pressure. Uh, financially, they were not doing so well. They were making big, big losses year after year. And in the early 90s, everything changed very rapidly and very abruptly. Um, and budgets were introduced and deadlines and project management and all that kind of things. Yeah, and then our group, our CCD group was always on the discussion, uh, shall we continue with this, shall we stop with this activity and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, to make an end on these endless discussions that took about one decade, by the way, um, we were sold, our CCD group was sold to Dalsa Corporation, which is a Canadian company. But actually the group remained in Eindhoven. So if I remember well, we were with around 100 people uh, I do not know exactly anymore, around 100 people who were basically taken out of the Philips organization, but not out of the Philips building, just taken out of the Philips organization and was set aside, and that was then under the umbrella of Dalsa Corporation. For a long time in the beginning, for a long time we were even using the Philips network and, and all that kind of thing, so, but we were completely owned by Dalsa, yeah. And that changed again a lot of things, of course. Eh? Uh, you go from a huge company, to a smaller company, although Dalsa at that time I think were about 1,000 people or so. A huge company um, to a smaller company, which is private, which at that time it was still privately owned. It was uh, Mr. Chamberlain who was basically the founder of Dalsa and he was also the general manager or CEO of Dalsa. Uh, that, changed, that changed a lot, of course. Eh? Yeah, yeah. And you went on to become CTO? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I became CTO uh, of uh, the company, Chief Technology Officer of uh, Dalsa Worldwide, and that was about 1,000 people, that's correct. But at that time also, well, actually, we were bought by Dalsa in 2002, but I started a part-time professorship in 2001 uh, at the TU Delft. And uh, actually, the combination of that part-time professorship and CTO of, of the company was not a good combination in the sense that People believe that um, to be CTO, you have to be full-time dedicated to the company and not part-time. So, and that discussion was not the most friendly one. And then it was decided that uh, I was switching from CTO to chief scientist of the company. And that happened, I think, and that happened in 2004, yes. Okay. And then in 2007, you left to start your um, yep. harvest imaging company. Yes, and then indeed in 2007 I started my own company. As I mentioned already, I, I, if you look back over the, the decades, over three, four decades, then I started an all freedom, my PhD, and I went an all freedom with doing and, and, and not doing whatever I want to do, so to say, with Philips. And then you change, and I fully understand that, that if finally you end up in a private company with, uh, with just 1,000 people, that you cannot have the same freedom as we had in the past. So and then I decided in 2007 uh, that it would be better for me to step out of Dalsa and start my own company, and that's what I did. So I started in, uh, if I remember well, uh, October 1st, 2007, Harvest Imaging. Harvest Imaging is concentrating, basically I have 
what I call four products. Uh, my main core business is training and teaching, uh, all kind of courses and, and digital imaging field camera courses or image sensor courses. Uh, I do a lot of trainings uh, uh, public, so everybody can register to these courses, but also in-house, which then you have tailored courses for, uh, for companies. But so training and teaching is my first uh, core business. Second is consulting. If there's any time left, then I do um, also a little bit of reverse engineering, but it's maybe not really the correct term to, uh, to describe this activity. Um, for instance, we were looking to, um, a couple of years ago, very popular, became the so-called autofocus pixels, pixels in an image sensor that have the capability to check whether your image is nicely in focus, yes or no. Autofocus pixels. And these autofocus pixels, you can find the, the working principle back in a couple of patterns of uh, mainly Japanese companies. But nobody ever published data on how does the signal look like that comes off these autofocus pixels. How do these signals change if I change the, the distance of my object to the lens and these kind of things. And if you are interested in that, and it's not available in the literature, then there's only a way out, and that is doing it yourself, measuring it yourself. So I bought uh, several cameras that are available on the market, uh, reshuffled a little bit the hardware, so that we could get access to the raw data, the real raw data out of the sensor. And I did a lot of measurements on how do these autofocus pixels behave as a function of distance, as a function of the color of the incoming signal, as a function of this, as a function of that. And I wrote a report out of it, and I tried to sell the report. That's what I call a kind of reverse engineering. At this particular moment, I'm doing a similar thing. and try to find an answer on the question, how do the characteristics of an image sensors, how good do they reproduce if you measure them 10 times in a row? Do you always find the same numbers? How good do these characteristics reproduce from sensor to sensor? If I have two sensors, are they, the characteristics the same? Basically, no, because uh, the image sensors are analog devices, but how much do they differ? And then number three is then the reliability and how do they change over time? If I measure them today and I measure them in, in one or two years from now, do I still find the same characteristics? And that's what I'm working on now, uh, at, if I have time, working on now and, try and write a report and then try to sell it. And actually, there's, there's quite a bit of interest in these kind of things. So try to find a niche, try to find a question, so to say, define yourself a question of which the answer cannot be found in, in literature, in the technical literature. Uh, yeah, and then do it yourself. That's number three. And then number four, I have on a yearly basis, I have what I call the Harvest Imaging Forum. Uh, that is a kind of a two-day training, always taking place in December. A kind of a two-day training on a very specific topic within or at the edge of digital imaging, which is actually out of my own field of expertise. So it's come close, but, but I'm not going to compete with my own courses. Eh? I then uh, hire or yeah, invite a world-level expert, let's say, on particular topics to talk two days about the subject and go only technical and go very deep into detail, the Harvest Imaging Forum. So that's what I'm doing, yeah. yeah. Sounds like anybody who's in image sensors, such as me, should actually go attend Harvest Imaging Forum. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be ideal. But then I have a lot of people. I have no idea, by the way, how many people around the world are working on, on digital imaging, but a lot, a lot, uh, several thousands. Um, no, that, 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 I do not get that many participants, I have to be honest. But I also limit, the Harvest Imaging Forum is also limited to 30 participants. Mm -hmm. to, I would like to keep the group small, and, and 30 is still what I call small.
to have enough interactions with the speaker and also to have uh, interactions between the participants. If we are successful, and, and that that's, has been the case uh, already many times, if we are successful with the Harvest Imaging Forum, then we do two sessions or even three sessions in a row with the same speaker, just to keep that group small. And, and, and that seems to, yeah, people seem to appreciate that, yeah. I also appreciate your um, International Image Sensor Workshop, um, which happens every two years. That's not mine, eh? That's not mine. Uh, be careful. Uh, um, I got involved in that one in 95, I think. They invited me to join the executive board of that uh, workshop. Uh, but that workshop is uh, originating, or that was first um, um, set up in, this, in the 80s, sorry, in the mid-80s by Eric Fossum. Eric Fossum is actually the, the, the father, so to say, of this workshop. Um, and then I got involved in 95, uh, and the third one, who was helping us out and uh, played a very, very major, big role in this uh, uh, workshop, is Nobukazu Teranishi. So the three of us, we were running the workshop till a couple of years ago, and then we expanded the board from three to six. And last year, we extended the board from six to 12. So now we have 12 people who do this, yeah. But that's very popular, that, that workshop, yeah. That's yeah, we eagerly wait for the publications because we learn so much about image sensor, state of the art and image sensor from ah. the publications. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, a very demanding workshop in the sense that we, normally the workshop is three and a half days. Um, you get an awful lot of presentations. Um, we limit, deliberately, we limit the number of participants to something like 180, 200 people in that order. And so people are extremely motivated to come to the workshop because they know it's, it's very limited, the, the number of attendees is very limited. And for that reason, they know I can, I'm pretty sure that I get a seat if my paper gets accepted. And your paper gets accepted if you come up with a high quality paper. So it's, it's a system that supports itself to have high quality papers, presentations, posters at the workshop. And, th and that works very, very, very well. So we really, yeah. I think that we can easily get twice the number of people at the workshop, but then I think that the quality goes down quite a bit. So by, by limiting that, that's, that's actually something that Eric Fossum installed from right from the beginning. So that kind of, you can call it marketing, I do not know, but that kind of marketing strategy, yeah, that, that pays off very well, and the quality of the workshop. Yeah. I think what tripped me up was I was confusing the IISS with IISW, so International Image Sensor Society. The International Image Sensor Society is, yeah, is uh, a society for uh, people that, uh, that work on image sensors. And it's very easy, to, uh, who is member of this society? Well, if you work on image sensors, then you auto are automatically member of the society, as simple as that. And, but the, the core product of the IISS, the International Image Sensor Society, is this workshop, is our workshop that we run every two years. Uh, but now we, we got appreciated by other organizations as well. And so we uh, sponsor, not financially, but we sponsor, technically sponsor also other workshops that, that deal with, uh, with image sensors. So at the end of this month, uh, February, we have the International SPAT Sensor Workshop. So again, ISSW, to make life complicated in Switzerland. Um, and we also technically sponsor that one as IISS. So we, we try to, to help other people also to, to organize these workshops and we hope that we do get them returned, that we then um, may allow the, the publication of their papers on our website. Yeah. That works very well. Yeah, so um, SPAD reminds me, that's a good segue into 
for our general audience, I think it might be good to explain the image, what an image sensor is and what a SPAD is. Yeah, that's an interesting question. What's an image sensor? I always tell to the people that think somebody knows what an image sensor is, try to explain that to your model, what an image sensor is. Yeah, that's, well, an image sensor is basically what the, what the retina is for the human eye, is basically what an image sensor is for the camera. So the image sensor tries to convert the incoming information into something that we can measure. And with the camera, the incoming information is, is the light, eh? is, is the image, the light, the, the light, the photons. And the image sensors captures these photons, converts them into electrons, and blah, blah, blah. And finally gives us a signal that we can measure or that we can manipulate. It can be a voltage, that's very easy to measure. Eh? Uh, but these days, um, the output of an image sensor is mainly a digital number because we have an A to D converter on, on, the, on the chip itself. So then we can connect the image sensor directly to a digital processor and we can process the data. We can extract features, we can improve the color and all, we can reduce the noise and these kind of things. That's what I mean by processing. That's what an image sensor does. As I mentioned already in the late 60s, we did 50 by 50 pixels. Uh, these days, yeah, we do millions and millions of pixels in one piece of silicon. That does not mean that all cameras these days are millions and millions of pixels, absolutely not. We still have a lot of applications out where we indeed have only a 32 by 32 pixels. Um, in an optical mouse, for instance, we have a tiny small image sensor. And for all kinds of automotive applications, you do not need millions and millions of pixels. You can live with 32 by 32 easily. But then we have a very special category of image sensor that's called the SPAD, S-P-A-D, a single photon avalanche diode. That is a very special thing in the sense that this uh, SPAD has an incredible, incredible high timer resolution. With the SPAD you can measure the time, or actually you can record the moment that a photon reaches the silicon. And that is these days very popular as SPAD, uh, especially in these applications where we are looking for distance measurements. There are a lot, a lot of distance measures, uh, measurements out these days that rely on the speed of light. You, so you send out a light pulse with your camera. So on your camera you have a light source, very often a laser diode or an LED. You, you send out a light pulse. That light pulse moves to a particular object, reflects and coming back. And then you detect when the light pulse is coming back. And so by simply measure the, measuring the time it takes for the light to travel to the object, to come back to your camera, you can basically calculate the distance. But the light is very fast. So the light travels in one nanosecond, the light travels over 30 centimeters. So if you would like to do an accurate measurement of the, of the distance, you need to be, or you need to have an incredible high accuracy in your detector for the time resolution. And that is basically what a SPAT has, yeah. That's one of the better explanations I've heard of a SPAT <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm not a SPAT, uh, SPAT uh, specialist uh, or a SPAT expert, absolutely not. For our younger audience, you take students at Delft, I assume. Yes. What do you look for when somebody is applying for a PhD? I'm going to give you a an answer that you probably did not expect. I'm in Delft. I have a part-time professorship in Delft. I try to be there every uh, week, one day. But like this week, for instance, I'm traveling uh, to the conference, to the ISSC, I will not be in Delft. Next week, by coincidence, by coincidence now, next week I will be on holidays. So the students don't see me during three weeks. And that basically means that they should, be, that they should have the capability to work 
as much as possible independently. Of course, I'm available through email. Uh, worst case, they can make a phone call, but so they can reach me basically at any given moment in the day that they want. But most of the time, they have to do their job fully independent. I do have a postdoc at this moment, so I have four PhD students in Delft at this moment, and one postdoc, so the postdoc can help out with, let's say, the daily sorrows or the daily questions. But um, on the other hand, they have, that's the first requirement, they should realize that they have to work independently. That works quite well, uh, so the young people can accommodate with that. That works quite well, except for the moment that they have very big issues, and very big issue is, is what I mean is when the chip is coming back from the, from the foundry and the chip does not work. That's the debugging part that can be very frustrating and very demotivating for the young people. And then it's very often, it's a pity that I'm not there just to, to support them. I cannot find the, the errors that they made, but just to support them, let's say, and help them a little bit and, and guide them a little bit. But the errors, if there's an error in, in a uh, chip design, yeah, that's something that they have to find out themselves, of course. So that's, that's the first requirement. Uh, second requirement is that they need to be interested, of course, in, in, in solid-state imaging. But solid-state imaging basically is a very rewarding field because people like to take images and people like to watch to beautiful images. So if you can, motivation in this, in this field is not so difficult. Most people are, are really motivated in the field of solid-state imaging, yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. So what advice would you give your younger self if you were to reflect back? Well, maybe I would not have given that advice 40 years ago to myself, but I would say in the first place, try to do a job, try to find a job um, where you can have fun at least, uh, that you like to do. I think that's the biggest, the biggest reward that you can have from, from working in a particular field is liking the job that you do. That can be content-wise of the job that you do, that can be in the environment the company with your colleagues and these kind of things and of course you do not know that always up front uh, in which group that you are going to end but uh, liking the job that you do is such a great uh, reward and, and that is paying off at, at the end of the road always always I can imagine that young people um, when they have, when they just come from from university or from college that they are maybe sometimes blinded by by the salaries and these kind of things and so on and so forth yeah, that, that is important. I do know that is important, but that is not the most important ones. Uh, have fun in, in your job. That's, that's the most important thing, yeah. yeah. That's very good advice indeed. So what would you say is the secret to your success? Is it hard work? Is it being in the right place at the right time or mix of both? Well, you need, to you need to have a little bit of luck, of course, and you need to be the right person at the right time at the right place. That's, that's for sure. And I was 100% lucky that I could start in 1976 uh, with my master thesis in solid state imaging. That's 100% pure, pure luck that I could, yeah, but because to be very honest with you, at the moment that I stepped in my master thesis project, I, I knew that it was about CCDs, but I had no clue what a CCD was. Uh, and I stayed in, in this for more than 40 years. And, uh, I, I was growing literally in the, in the field from, from yeah, knowing nothing than a little bit of hardware, a little bit of technology. Then with Philips, I did design, I did testing, and then management and so on and so forth. And now I run my own company. You need to be, yeah, as I mentioned, you need to be the right person at the right time 
at the right place. And yeah, you need to have a little bit of luck. We, I, I went through rough times also, by the way, together with the group at Philips. So don't think that it's all good news. I had also to fire people um, because Philips told us to reduce the group and so on and so forth. So it's not always a success story. But if you believe in the things that you do, and if you go for it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard work. But what is hard work? If you love the things that you, that you do, then uh, working a lot of, of hours and, and, and trying to, to solve difficult problems, technical-wise, but also with, with, your, with your people and so on and so forth, then it's not hard work. So that's, that, and that's basically yeah, the thing that I would, would recommend. Go for it. And don't listen always exactly to what your manager says. <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful with that, of course, uh, these days. But yeah, yeah. If you have good ideas, especially in research, eh? if you have good ideas, yeah, try to, to, to push them through. I mean, with, with all your effort and your, all your energy that you have. And if these, if your own ideas are coming through, then that's the great reward that you have of, of your work. And I see that also with my, and that's one of the beautiful things of, and of the great things to work with young um, engineers that, that do a PhD. Yeah, that's maybe the motivation why I'm still in Delft, that, that is that you see these young people growing in their profession and growing in their field. A PhD program at, at the University of Delft takes uh, four years. And I tell my students always, the first two years, I take you by the hand and I will guide you. But the last two years, the roles are, are turned around. Then you have to take me by, by the hand and you have to guide me. You have to come up with the new ideas and, and, and these kind of things. And, and that's something that I see with all, almost all my engineers. So after, when they are somewhere halfway, then it turns and then they become really adult engineers, so to say, adult in their, adults in their, own, uh, in their own field, in this case, solid state imaging. And that's so nice, yeah. yeah. That's very good advice. So between all this work, do you ever get to do something fun? <laughs> do something fun? Yeah, yeah, try to do something fun. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, if you get older, you have to think a, a little bit more uh, about the health, eh? about your health. Uh, because I do realize that, that I can do this at the same pace that I'm doing it right now, as long as you stay healthy. So I try to do a little bit of sports. Maybe you don't expect that if you see me. But <laughs> <laughs> do a bit of cycling uh, in, the, uh, in the weekends, over the weekends, yes. And I try to find, I try to find uh, at least half a day in the week also to do some sports uh, in, uh, in the afternoon, half a day. So also to do some cycling with some friends or with some family members. I love skiing as well, but that's only once in a year, of course, one week in a year. These kind of things. Yeah, and then, yeah, and sometimes they say, and be prepared. Uh, once you retire, you should have a hobby. But one of my kids once told me, yeah, but his hobby is his work, and his work is his hobby, so <laughs> he, he has already a hobby, so yeah, yeah. So you've kept up your uh, love of cycling from your childhood. Uh, yeah, 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 we, well, yeah, that's exactly what I told uh, before, uh, but I also went to school uh, by bike. Besides the biking, uh, yeah, I, I love uh, the rock music, uh, yeah, and uh, so I listen very, very quite a bit of, of, in my free time also to rock music, yeah. yeah. Uh, any recommendations for something that I should listen to? Uh, then you should visit my website and check out why Harvest Imaging is called Harvest Imaging. Okay, I will do that. Okay. Dr. Tewison, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Did you like this podcast? 
Please leave us a review on iTunes so others can find out about it. Did you not like something? Please drop me an email. Also, if you'd like someone to be on the show, or if you have anything to say at all, send me an email. My email address is chipchat at fastmail.com. Again, it's chipchat at fastmail.com. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Solid State Circuit Society. Please check out sscs.ieee.org to become a member. Thank you.